All right, then we'll go on to the next thing. Is That's two songs. No, actually, we're going to have a Bible study with uh, Ms. Uh, Mr. Curtis uh, Whiteley, if I got that right. Bible study. <laughs> if I made a mistake, I apologize. But I find this is probably going to be very interesting. On James. Thank you, Ron. Everyone doing all right today? So, just a quick announcement, real quick, uh, for teen class. Uh, we're going to go ahead, I was going to fill in for teen class today, but I'm going to do the Bible study here in the first portion. But after, during the sermon portion, all of those teens that would like to do teen class, we'll do teen class during that portion. So, uh, as Ron said, uh, we're starting on week, our, our fifth study on our study in James. N.T. writes a book on James that we started back in January, and uh, today we're going to go to study five, and it's entitled Faith and Works. That's a dirty word in a lot of circles within Christianity for many, many years. There's been lots of debates surrounding this topic of faith and works. And it's interesting, and this has probably been mentioned before, but years and years and years ago, there's a man by the name of Martin Luther who became the instigator of the Protestant Reformation, he called this book, this letter that we have, the letter of James, a book of straw. Now, if you're asking yourself, what does he mean by that? It's not a positive description, but rather straw being something that doesn't really have much nutrients to it. Uh, and it's interesting that he had that perspective because uh, flash, uh, fast forward to you know, more modern times, James is looked at as one of the more wisdom-rich books that we have. And this topic that we're going to get in today, in my opinion, and I think probably you would share it, is kind of like a, just a, a, a little bit of a jolt. Because James touches upon some topics that are theological, they're doctrinal, we can understand what he's saying, but at the very personal level, it's kind of a wake-up call as well. Because we're going to learn as we read James that we're, we see that you know our actions really are kind of the best demonstration, the best evidence for really what's in the heart. And so I'm going to start off like we always do, just reading this first portion, and then we're going to get into some of the questions. And I invite everyone here, as we always do, to please chime in. Uh, of course, there might be things that you know, aren't in your mind right now, but as we go through the study, that you might just be uh, inspired uh, by someone saying something else. So please... Do not hesitate to chime in and to uh, contribute to our Bible study. So I'm going to start off. It's on page uh, 31. N.T. Wright writes this. He says, in this study, we'll look at one of the most well-known verses in the whole letter of James. Just as the body without the spirit is dead, you see, so faith without works is dead. But isn't that the wrong way round? If we were to use the body and the spirit as a picture for faith and works, wouldn't we make faith correspond to the spirit and works to the body? After all, faith happens in the spiritual dimension and works in the bodily dimension. 
don't they? But James does the opposite. Here we'll be seeking to sort out what James has in mind. And N.T. Wright opens up with this opening question. How are you affected when a person says they care about you deeply, but there are no actions behind his or her words? How are you affected when a person says they care about you deeply, but there are no actions behind his or her words? Would anybody would like to share maybe some thoughts on this first opening question? I can tell you that I think we've all experienced this before, right? Where people, you know, they say one thing, but their actions really demonstrate what they say is kind of hollow. There's not a lot of substance behind it. I know that, Art, we have a question. Or I have a, Art Williams. Yeah, it was one in my early days in the church, that was one of my pet peeves, <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah, so many people said they cared, but nobody showed that they cared. Uh, and developed a, an attitude that I had at the time. But it's, 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 for our church, it's a little bit different than the early times because there were local churches. People probably walked to church or, read their borough, or rode their burrow or horse or something. Today, we're spread out all over. Some of us might drive 30 miles to come to our church here. So it's a little more difficult to really get involved the way you could have back at the time when James uh, wrote. Absolutely, sure. Anybody else want to share maybe some thoughts on this first question? I know that, you know, growing up, you know, many different situations, you know, we have relationships with people and, uh, you know, uh, you know, maybe even We've done this ourselves, right? It's not just about what you know, people have done to us, but maybe we can think of situations where, where we've verbalized to someone about how much they care, or we said you know, uh, that we have you know, deep love for someone or uh, deep affection, and of course we, we failed to really materialize that in any kind of action. I know that you, know, you can apply this, obviously, in our relationships with you know, personal individuals, friends, family, but as... You know, someone in the workforce, like many of us, we've all had, you know, those, you know, people above us, maybe leaders, who maybe say one thing and uh, their actions speak a lot louder than words, right? Because they do something completely different. They choose to make decisions, really, that uh, don't do anything to help you, but just maybe help them. And so we'll get into the, some of this as we go through this, but let's go ahead. I'm going to read. James, the second chapter, verse 14 through 26, which is our scripture today. And then we'll kind of get into the study questions that N.T. Wright has for us. So James 2, verse 14, James says this, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But if someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. 
But do you know, want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he also called the friend of God. And he was also called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And so going into this first study question after we were asked to read James 2 verses 14 through 26, we see that N.T. Wright asks us this first question. He kind of gives us you know, a little bit of uh, narrative first, but he says James is very concerned at a, about a problem which was already arising in the earliest church and which is with us to this day. He has already begun to address this problem in the previous chapter when he spoke about being people who do the word, not merely people who hear it. He has heard people talking about faith, not meaning a rich, lively trust in the loving, living God, but rather a shell, a husk, an empty affirmation, a bare acknowledgement. In verses 14 through 17, how does James illustrate faith that is like a body without a spirit? They want to chime in. In verses 14 through 17, how does James illustrate faith that is like a body without a spirit? And just to reread those scriptures, we see that James says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so in this situation, answering the question that N.T. Wright poses to us, we see that you, know, you have a scenario where you have someone that is in need of something. And instead of actually taking action and fulfilling the need that the individual has, you just merely tell them to be warmed as if your words are sufficient to warm them. There was no action to actually rectify and help that brother or that sister in need. And so question number two says, what examples can you think of that similarly illustrate an empty faith? Reggie? This is actually a problem I struggle with a bit, uh, and that is, it's the difference between head faith and heart faith. Intellectually, I know that God is all-powerful. I know that he can do anything. He's willing to do anything. He's there, ready for the asking, ready to help in. But the heart's not there, and it's difficult then. It, it's, like that's something here, prayers are like, smoke from incense that rises up and curls just beneath the rafters and doesn't ascend any higher up. That's an empty faith. 
intellectual. Thank you, Reggie. It kind of reminds me, and I'm paraphrasing a quote I heard one time that, you know, we can't just have he heart, uh, head knowledge. We need heart appropriation. You know, where that knowledge is actually appropriately appropriated in our heart, where it's not just some intellectual exercise that we do or some, you know, words that we say or say, yeah, I know that's true. You know that's true intellectually, but do you know that's true from your heart, where the, every fiber of your being believes it and it prompts you to live in such a way where you pray it's not just God I pray for this but then you go away and you wonder is God really going to do what I'm asking is he really going to help or do you walk away and you know in your heart that faith that you know and I know that that's similar to an action because it's a state of being and so in that state of being in that state of knowing with all your being that God's going to, he's in control, number one, but he's also going to see you through the situation, is that heart-mind connection really being made? Mr. Still. This, um, it's interesting because this can be kind of a, like, like Reg was saying, this is a hard question because there's also the inverse to it, right? Um, sometimes it feels like we don't have enough faith if we try and do the thing for ourselves, right? Because Abraham is an example of, well, <laughs> he didn't have enough faith to wait for God, and so we had a whole bunch of other problems because he had a child by, you know, the slave woman, and, and we know that story, and that's part of the story. But that was him trying to work it out himself. So we have this conflict within us. It's like, yes, faith without taking active steps in faith is dead but when do we also cross the line and and now start to bypass faith and and bring about the outcome ourselves without waiting on god so i, I think buried in the answer there is is really what is god telling you to do or not to do you know and and that comes down to that personal hearing his voice and understanding how he's guiding you, rejecting what anybody else says you should or should not do. You know, we'll, we'll get all kinds of input, right, when we ask people, what should I do in this situation? It's really listening to God and then taking that step of faith. Sometimes it's not taking a step that is the step of faith, and sometimes it is actually taking that step in faith. Larry, one man show back there. Is this working? Okay, I'm, maybe it's my fault. I'm sorry. Um, what comes to my mind on that? If you see a need and you really care for that person, you're really more interested in filling that need. If you have, and with the whatever means you have to help that person. Not just what, just say, just trying to make yourself feel good that you're that in telling them to be well. It's I think it's a hard hard thing that's involved in this. You really care for a person. You're gonna you're gonna try to help that person however you can with whatever the means you have to help. Thank you, Larry. Yeah, and I would agree with that. You kind of touched upon something I thought about, and 
And I think that it's possible even to actually take action and still not have necessarily the faith uh, that you're proclaiming because it might be more out of a motivation. Well, this is what I got to do and you know, I'm going to feel bad if I don't help them out rather than you see someone in need and if you deeply do care about them, their being in need hurts you. You hate to see them going through what they're doing, what they're going through, and so it actually causes you pain. And so you're motivated out of true love, not just so you can, you know, check the box, well, I did my part, I helped them out, but it's actually a genuine love to help restore that, you know, person that's in need. And whatever it may be, it might be financial, it might be actual material things, it might be in need of, of, of you know, uh, emotional or support of some sort. So uh, it's, 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 it's an interesting, uh, you know, uh, idea that we think about, but sometimes, you know, we're the only ones that truly know if this was out of genuine faith. So moving on to our next question, or uh, what, what N.T. Wright, question three, on page 32, he says, actually, verses 15 and 16 don't just provide an illustration of the fact that faith without works is dead. As we see throughout the letter, one of the key, one of the key works that James expects followers of Jesus to do is to care for the poor. What are ways that you are caring or could begin to care for the poor? What are ways that you are caring or could begin to care for the poor? Fran? One way is um, the uh, electric company and I think the gas company provide a box that you can provide money that will help the poor pay their lights gas or gas. Um, there's a, a ship that's by, uh, I think, Samaritan's Purse that provides surgeries for people in Africa that cannot afford, cannot take care of themselves. That's another way. You can look around and see yourself, see for yourself people who ne have needs, and if you can't, there are organizations, you know, uh, St. Jo uh, John 3.16 provides food for the poor. And we've actually, the church, there was several in the church that went out and served meals one time. So there's several ways. I happened to find out this week that um, a lot of the homeless people in Tulsa right now are that way because the government and different things uh, have cut programs that were available for them to get help. And John 3.16 offers still. And support on that uh, program helps to take care of people who are down on their luck. And sometimes it's just a loss of job and they can't make rent. It's not that, you know, they're there for any other reason. Um, also, St. Jude takes care of a child's needs regardless of if the parent can pay or not. And the Bible says to visit the fatherless, take care of the orphans, you know, in applying or giving your alms to some of these organizations, you're feeding the poor. 
and you are helping some of these people that can't help themselves. Right in front of you. Oh. <laughs> it's a good problem to have. The elderly, um, just people in your neighborhood, you know, know who your neighbors are. You know, if they have a need, if they need new tires on their vehicle, if they need some food for their animals or even for themselves, just, just get it for them if you can. Just know their needs because, you know, they, some of them don't get a lot of money from Social Security or anything. Some of them don't just get a widow's pension and it's hardly enough to live on. So just, just know your neighbors and know their needs and help when you can. Brittany. So um, last year, I think it was the the kids class here did that um, big thing where they put together those Ziploc baggies full of items that people could take with them and just hand out to people that they needed. Does anyone remember that? Yeah. Um, there was food. There was food and um, you know stuff that lasted and. Um, and socks and toiletries and things like that. So I thought that was a really good idea. You know, for me on a small scale, I can keep little baggies like that of toiletries and food because I have some qualms about handing out money and stuff. So, so just keeping like bags of things that you can hand out to people. You see when it starts to get cold, you can have, you know, socks and food and, and things like that. Just on a small scale, you can help out a little. Absolutely, and I mean, I remember when I was in uh, teen class years and years ago, and uh, Matthew and a couple of the other uh, younger adults started a, a little club uh, for some of us older teens, and I guess you would say uh, young adults, and I think we called it the Timothy Club, the Young Timothys. I don't know if Matt remembers this, but we... <laughs> He, uh, uh, one of the things we did is we did the same thing. We, we uh, came here one Sabbath or one Sunday, and we, uh, we, we gathered up a bunch of different things in little baggies, and we took it downtown Tulsa to John 316. And, uh, you know, it was a really good experience. Uh, you know, me being from Bixby, Oklahoma, uh, I think I was 19 years old. I think it was like right before I was baptized or right after. Uh, we loaded up. Uh, something, some circumstances happened, and, and, and Matthew wasn't able to come, so... We loaded up back of my Ford Ranger, uh, 1993 Ford Ranger, with all those little, you know, baggies, and we went down to John 316, and this young, you know, kid from Bixby, Oklahoma, country town, right, goes in the middle of downtown Tulsa, John 316, and really, my eye was opened, you know, it was a little scary at first, uh, be just because of just, you know, not being, you know, used to being down there, and you had all of these individuals that, you know, we pull up, and uh, all of a sudden, you just, I mean, they, they knew, because people did this, you, all these individuals started walking towards you, and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, what, what am I getting myself into? And it was intimidating. But through that, I, I started talking to some of these people. And some of them, of course, I mean, I didn't know all their situations. I mean, they had rough lives. You know, I don't know what they went through when they were 8 years old, 12 years old, 16 years old. But I just started listening to some of them. They started telling the stories. A lot of them were, they, they were transient. I mean, they, 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 you know, came from Arizona, and somehow that's just kind of, they just were kind of traveled around and through life circumstances, somehow they ended up in Tulsa. 
But it was a really good experience, and it's definitely something that's worthwhile, I think, for us to maybe start back up. And it's interesting, and I don't want to take too much more time on this, but uh, you, were, you mentioned earlier about the elderly. I remember also being a kid. Uh, there's an individual by the name of Bob Johnson. There's probably only one person in this room that knows who I'm talking about, Ron Cole. Long, long, long time ago, my Uncle Tommy, uh, Jeanette McMurray's uh, husband, Tommy McMurray, uh, he was friends with this individual as a plumber in Broken Arrow. Uh, World War II veteran or of some sort, veteran of some sort, he was a plumber. The man literally took it upon himself. He was a widower, I believe. I think he ended up eventually getting remarried. But he took it upon himself to make sure all the widows of Broken Arrow were taken care of as far as plumbing. I mean, he would drive around and just, I mean, they couldn't, they, you'd have to catch this individual to try to pay him. You could never find him to pay him, and he wouldn't let people pay him. And it's interesting because here's this individual that talked like a sailor, literally, that demonstrated some, you know, genuine biblical principles, uh, you know, that I always made an impression on me. Uh, so I just uh, thought I would bring that out. Question four, I, I did want to go ahead and ask question four. How does giving of ourselves for the poor demonstrate faith? Anybody wants to, I know it's very related to what we just went over in that, that, that first question, that question on number three, uh, that's a part of question number three. But the reason I wanted to bring this out is, is when you think about it, I'm reminded of this song that we sang here before. I think it's Casting Crowns called Jesus, Friend of Sinners, right? And in that song, it's interesting because when I read this question, how does giving of ourselves for the poor demonstrate faith? What reminds me about this question is the fact that when we just think about our life, ourselves, we were all poor. We were all poor in spirit. We are all like the leper, right? Castaways from God, alienated from God. And what Jesus did for us, looking upon us, not looking at himself as he's the son of God, he's, you know, you know of divine origins, but lowly us, he took it upon himself to not forget us because of his love for us and through the ultimate demonstration of faith, sacrificed himself so we could live. And so in that way, I think when we have that mindset, when we go out and we're helping people in need, and we think about the question, how does giving of ourselves for the poor demonstrate faith? I think that it's possible that it can help us always remember what we're doing for other people when we're helping them is what was done for us by Christ our Savior. And it's not even comparable. It's just a token in comparison to what Jesus has done for us. Let's go to question five. In verse 19, James goes back to one of the most basic points of ancient Judaism. The confession that God is one. That was and still is at the heart of the Jewish daily prayer found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. It was at that point that Jesus himself added what James has earlier called the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. But simply saying God is one doesn't get you very far if it doesn't make a difference in your life. After all, as James points out, the demons know all this too. And it doesn't do them any good. 
It merely scares them out of their wits. So it becomes clear that what James means by faith in this passage is not what Paul and others developed as a full Jesus-shaped meaning. It is the basic ancient Jewish meaning, the confession of God as one. This, he says, needs to translate into action, into Jesus-shaped action. If it is to make any significant difference, at this point, he is actually on the same page as Paul, who is his fiercest letter who in his fiercest letter about faith and works defines what matters as faith working through love in Galatians, the fifth chapter, verse 6. According to verses 18 through 20, why is faith without works considered dead faith? And let me just read that real quick one more time. Verse 18 says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. But show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? According to these verses, why is faith without works considered dead faith? Friend? Saying um, uh, actions speak louder than words. And when we are not having the actions, our words are empty. There's nothing there. And if we truly believe what God says, then we would be truly doing what he says. Anyone else? Matthew? Um, so I meant to say this earlier, but you know, it's good to remind ourselves about what James means when he says works right he doesn't mean law he doesn't mean like a a specific following of commandments although you may be following commandments in fact you're following the ultimate one of the the ultimate two right which is loving your neighbor as yourself which we talked about in one of the earlier uh subjects but you know because at first you can start to say well there's there's a conflict here um and, and certainly even talking about Abraham, well, it was by faith that Abraham, but yes, by faith Abraham dwelled in tents, left the city, left the life that he knew, and went out into the wilderness and started that, you know, that, that pilgrim uh, journey. If he had not done that, he would have remained what he was already, right? Dead, having no children, no offspring, he was, he was, you know, he was dead, right? Physically dying and not being able to have any children at all. But instead, he, he obeyed God, acted in faith. Yes, he kept the commandments, but the things that we're talking about here are works, the specific actions that God called him to do. And then, by that faith, was now made alive. And, and from him came all of these nations, and the whole story of the Bible, you know, that the whole book. Um, and if he had not done that, then, then we, we just would be talking about somebody else. Absolutely. Anybody else want to chime in on this question? Larry? A little bit to add to that. Um, didn't God say a little bit about uh, hear, hearing the word and not doing it? 
is not the ones that's going to receive the rewards. Those that hear the word and do it, aren't you the ones that are going to receive the rewards? That's the way I understand what he says. Those who, you know, refuse to do what, you know, say that they do the things of God but don't, is what you're saying. Yes. Anybody else want to? Yes, right here. I just, I just want to say that uh, from this question that says, why is faith without works considered dead faith, as well as the past question, which was, how does giving of ourselves for the poor demonstrate faith? Well, if you say that you have faith, for instance, that God will provide for you, or that, you know, for instance, if God asks you, to do something like maybe give a certain person your time or give another person of your money, but you say, I don't have enough time or I can't pay my bills. You're not showing faith because you're not giving God a chance to actually provide for you by when you provide for others, God will also provide for you. So if you're not giving God the chance to provide for you, then you're not showing your faith because when you have faith, you will be tested and you're not testing your faith when you don't follow through with when you... <sighs> if you say that you have faith and you don't give God that chance, then he cannot test your faith. And so you don't truly know if you really have faith in what if God is going to do what he says he's going to do. Thank you. Very good assessment. Appreciate your input. Anybody else? I think we have time maybe for one more question here. Uh, David Hope, yeah, go ahead. When, uh, my wife just reminded me of a situation years ago. Uh, we were in the old worldwide church and uh, we hadn't been in business very long, and we had five children. Uh, money was scarce at that time. We're just trying to get a business business off the ground, and uh, we qualified. Back in those days, you had to buy your food stamps. We couldn't afford to buy them. Friends said, "If I had that much money, I could I could make my own meals." Long story short, uh, there was a couple in the church, another family that uh, back during uh, some of the older people remember Ernest Martin time period when they took a lot of people out of the church, and there was this one couple or family in there that was we knew was on the verge of leaving the church. You know, they had all the symptoms, the attitudes, and all that, and we invited them over. To, uh, for supper after church that day, knowing that we didn't have much food. We bought a turkey because we could make a turkey last us just about all week. And, but it was worth it to us. We felt that God would make that turkey last through our five kids, and I think they had four at the time. And, uh, but anyway, long story short, it did. It lasted. La I got so tired of turkey, turkey soup, turkey sandwiches. <laughs> But we had the faith, and, and, and it did work. Anybody else have any more? All right, so we have time for one more question, I think. I'll go ahead and read what number six has to say. It says on page 33 at the bottom, question six, James mentions 
two famous people in Scripture. The first is Abraham, the father of the Israelite people, verses 21 through 24. James brings together two key passages. One is Genesis 15, where Abraham believes in God's promise to give him an enormous family, even though he is childless. The other passage is Genesis 22. There, following the awful episode about Abraham fathering a son on his, uh, on his slave girl, Hagar, and then sending them away. Abraham faces a stern test. He is commanded to sacrifice Isaac, his son, by Sarah, the son through whom those great promises were to be fulfilled. It's a dark episode, but Abraham proceeds as told with God stopping him at the last moment and providing a ram to sacrifice instead. The question is, how do you see, on page 34, how do you see Abraham's faith cooperating with his works in both instances? I think that Matt kind of touched a little bit upon this, and I think this kind of goes back to what was just said just a minute ago about how Abraham now gave himself, put himself in a position for his faith truly to be tested. He gave himself and put himself in a position to truly be tested. Fran? God had promised Abraham that he would have nations through, uh, through Isaac. And he had to believe that God really meant that. So God would have had to either resurrect Isaac for that to happen or something happened that he didn't have to go through with a sacrifice. It's interesting that Abraham tested or Abraham was tested by God at that old age. I mean, he was tested from the very beginning. I mean, of course, when he was called out uh, of his homeland and uh, you know, to what would become the promised land. But you got to think about from that first call to whenever he was asked to take Isaac up onto a mountain and sacrifice him, there was a lot of, there was a lot of things that Abraham saw, you know, that God had done, had always been faithful, had always been faithful in, uh, I guess you would say, carrying out what he said that he was going to do, even where there was times that Abraham was like, there's no way. God must be referring to this. Oh, he must be, you know, he must be thinking that I'm going to have a son through, you know, you know, my, 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 my concubine. He was prepared at that moment through the journey that he went through with God uh, as his faith grew to be able to handle that test. Anybody else want to give some input? <coughs> um, isn't there one that Let's see. Well, really, I feel that they had a close relationship together, God and Abraham, and that made it, that makes a world of difference. But uh, but God did put him to a very <laughs> a very tough test. Been and he well, Abraham. If if it wasn't for the last second, Isaac would have been killed. But doesn't it say some? Isn't isn't there a scripture in there that? <clears throat> says that God will provide a, a sacrifice. Does anybody yes. else? I think that's what the name of the place became named after that. Yeah. Go ahead.
Okay, that's, I mean, that was, that came to my mind. I think that's what he said, so, and anyway. One right here in front. Well, he, let's see if it's, I think he might have turned it off. He, he goes back and forth on where the sound comes from. Okay, something I've seen in this, though, is Abraham went out on his own and thought, yeah, God wants me to have this place, but he thought in his own mind, here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to, you know, my wife's too old and everything, so we'll just take advantage of this young girl here, and then we'll have our our children and everything grow up. Well, that wasn't God's plan, and he had to show Abraham how awful this was when he had a disobedience. So he has him go up there in the hill with his son, and Abraham is realizing as they get closer, I'm going to be sacrificed my own son. And he's realizing how when you're being disobedient that, you know, things cost you. And God waited to the last moment, and then he spared Isaac and allowed Abraham to understand how awful it was when you disobey him and how terrible it was for God, what he, you know, because he's counting on Abraham. Sure, yeah. It's also worth noting that in that particular passage, and I have mentioned this before, and I actually never knew this until like probably about six or seven months ago when I was given a message and I was preparing for it, whenever you go back to Genesis, the 12th chapter, the very beginning of Abraham, you know, uh, where, you know, the beginning where he's still Abram and, uh, He's in that deep sleep, and he and he has this experience where, you know, God tells them to basically line up a sacrifice, you know, make an altar, and you know, you basically dismember the animals. And the individuals that are making a covenant, what they do is is that they walk through the sacrifice. You know, they kind of pass over it. And what in ancient times, what that custom was in making covenants was actually saying that if the individual, if one of the parties breaks the covenant that they're entering, they're declaring, let them be as these animals, cut asunder. And so God himself, you know, was basically saying that he was, of course, you know, demonstrating, uh, you know, how serious he was, is he himself passed through those sacrifices and saying, and we know that his word is sure and it can't fail, but he was putting himself in that custom and saying, if these things, and I'm telling you, you know, your descendants be of the stars of the, of the sky and the sand of the, the seashore, then I would be, you know, he's subjecting himself to the same things. And so he's demonstrating just how sure he was in trying to guarantee Abraham how serious he was in what he was telling him. In my mind, could be wrong, Someday maybe we can ask Abraham. At this moment, there's no doubt that he looked back and probably thought about that time that God walked through the sacrifice and through that experience, that journey he had. Even though he didn't want to do this, it wasn't. He was probably hoping. I hope that this is some sort of you know analogy. God's gonna you know maybe you know there's something that I'm not understanding, and it came to be that it was something. It was a test, but he had to be thinking that you know what God. Even though this is not what I want to do, he has never failed me since. He's always, even though it's, never, it's not always on my timeline, 
he has always been faithful to the things that he said was going to happen. So I'm going to have faith and I'm going to trust God. And in the same way, we flash forward to Jesus and we see that Jesus, he lives this life, right? And we, we talk about faith and works. And, you know, he's, again, you know, I've said this before, he's living among the religious leaders that are saying one thing and oftentimes doing another. And so we see that Jesus preaches and and, and teaches all these things about God. And, and, and in all of that, he's demonstrating that what he's preaching, what faith it is he's professing, is perfectly demonstrated in his works. He's following through with every single bit of what his words are having to say. And at the very end, he's on that cross and he's being sacrificed. And in that moment, it demonstrates that he was everything he said he was. His relationship and his faith in the Father was airtight. It wasn't massage. It wasn't, he wasn't a fraud. It wasn't something he was just pretending to be. But it was exactly as he said it was. And it was proven through his works. And in much of the same way, that's what we, I believe, as Christians, that's the ultimate example that we're following after is Jesus, of course, who showed that his faith was alive and his works proved and demonstrated it. So with that, I think I'll go ahead and close. I appreciate everyone's participation today. Uh, we, only, we didn't get through all of it, as we never do. And so till next week that we will move on to chapter 3 and lesson 6.